With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everybody. How are you? Um, I hope this finds you well, and I hope that you have had a good week. Um, If you are a regular listener, welcome back. If this is your first time joining us, welcome along. It's lovely to have you with us and hopefully you're going to take this moment to dive into one of our 250 episodes and explore the world of soundtracking and listen to some of the fantastic guests that we have had on the show up to this point. We've got so many exciting guests to come. Uh, Looking forward to welcoming back some people that have been on already and finally getting people on the show like Mr. Tom Hiddleston, who has been very kind to us and has enthused about us on his social media. Um, so we're thrilled that he's able to join us on the podcast to talk about, well, to talk about Loki, but also to talk about loads of other things as well, um, in particular his own personal journey with music and film. So yeah, looking forward to sharing that with you. But it's becoming a bit of a thing here on the podcast, having two guests for the price of one. But I'm really pleased to welcome John Krasinski, and Marco Beltrami to the podcast, given that A Quiet Place 2 was the first film that I was lucky enough to go and see in the cinema after the most recent lockdown. And I highly encourage you to do the same. It is a film that needs to be seen on the big screen for the full kind of immersive experience. Once again, um, the latest Quiet Place um, edition was written and directed by John and scored by Marco. And the film continues the story of a family forced to navigate a world inhabited by blind aliens with heightened hearing. Best not make too much noise then. I think it's probably safe to say. Now, plenty to discuss with John and Marco in a moment. But first, a word from our very, very good friends at Grass & Co. Now, if you're a regular listener to Soundtrack and you'll have heard me talking about this brand quite a lot, that's because I I'm a genuine fan of their products. Um, And I wanted to clear a few things up for some of you who might not be aware of what CBD is and what its benefits are. Now, CBD stands for, apologies if I always get this wrong, cannabidiol, um, which is a natural extract of the hemp plant, but it's both legal and non-intoxicating. Grass & Co are a premium CBD range of the finest quality, sustainably sourced and blended with complementary botanical ingredients like chamomile, ginger, turmeric and ashwagandha, which not only make it taste nice, but help relax your mind and soothe your body. Now, why do I use it? Well, to be frank, it just makes my day a little bit easier. I find it helps me with things like anxiety, with stress and definitely with sleeping. So maybe now's the time for you to give CBD a go. And if so, well, I can highly recommend Grass & Co products. Now, there are three ranges, Calm, Rest and Ease. And I'm particularly fond of the Calm range, which also comes with complementary products like aromatherapy candles, pillow sprays or great for any muscle issues, their CBD balm. They're all there to help you with your daily routine, bringing a touch of tranquility to whatever lays ahead for you. Grass & Co CBD oils contain no trace of THC. All the CBD products are totally legal to buy, consume and supply in the UK. Interested? Well, find your calm 
with 25% off plus free shipping at grassandco.com forward slash sound. That's grassandco.com forward slash sound. All you need to do to use that discount code is use the word sound at checkout to claim your 25% off the Grass & Co. Calm, Ease and Rest CBD ranges. So visit grassandco.com forward slash sound and use the discount code sound at checkout to claim 25% off the entire Grass & Co. ranges. And so to John with Marco to follow afterwards. Now we'll begin with one of the latter's cues from A Quiet Place Part 2, Encouraging Feedback. Edith, how you doing? I'm really good. I'm so glad I got this. I'm in my car. I'm just going to tell you straight away. We've had, I, had a- I can tell. I can tell. Thank <laughs> you for being honest. But sadly, I knew before you told me. Not, it's not a green screen of a car. It's an actual car. So yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, congratulations on on this latest um, chapter of A Quiet Place. It was absolutely just the perfect film to reacquaint myself with the cinema. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. Honestly, I mean, people coming out to see our movie is so thrilling, but equally thrilling, if not more so, is that people are coming out at all to, to back to the theater. So thank you for saying that. It's the gift that keeps on giving in terms of there's so many emotions that you've been able to deliver within this film. Was that the was was that part of the aim of this film not really sitting in one category of it fulfilling lots of different things? I think so. I mean, I think for me, probably where that comes from is I didn't want to do a sequel at all. I mean, to me, a sequel, I was very fearful, as I'm sure a lot of people were, that sequels are often made just for sequel's sake. And this first movie was so incredibly special to me and so incredibly personal. Um, I know I've said it before and it sounds bizarre, but it was a love letter to my kids. And so I didn't know how I'd be able to tell as personal and as organic a story as that. So what ended up happening was... I told them to go make another or make it with someone else. But the one idea I kept thinking of is if you made Millie the lead character of the movie, what does that do? And it it, it Mm -hmm. opens up a whole door of storytelling that I was really interested in exploring. Not only do I think that she's one of the more brilliant actors I've ever worked with and is able to hold a franchise, but she's also the continuation of all the metaphors and themes that we were dealing with. This idea of family and parenthood and Um, being bolder and more courageous than the generation in front of you. All that stuff was possible once I had that idea. And really, it was thinking about working with Millie in that way that made me want to do the second one. So it it was that idea then I was going to ask you who or what made you change your mind, really? 
her being the lead again allowed me to continue the metaphors, which was so key to me. And then all of a sudden the storyline started opening, which is if you have Millie, you get to experience the other parts of the world because she's brave enough to walk off the path and actually take this story and this, you know, the answer that she found in the first movie, she's brave enough to take it to the rest of the world, even though it, it may be dangerous and treacherous. And I think that that allowed you to um, have a, a, a member, a cast member like Killian Murphy. You got to have people who were experiencing yeah. the world in a very different way and in, and in a very understandable way. I mean, what Killian is, is a morally ambiguous character who very rightly feels that he doesn't want to go on. He has given up on life because he's suffered a tremendous loss. He's going through an extremely dark time that the rest of the world is going through. And very much like humanity, it's, it's tempting to give up when, when times get really hard. And that idea of thinking of Millie being the inspiration for someone else to start again and, and give life another shot was, was extremely moving for me. And I love that passing down of that as well. And the fact that she kind of got that inspiration from your character, you know, her dad, this, this beautiful relationship that they had, which we get to see, you know, at the start of the film. And we kind of see where her strength and her drive kind of come, the seed of it comes from really. Which That's is exactly gorgeous. right. Yeah. And I think that to me, you know, I had always been told don't work with kids because <laughs> they never know their lines. They cost you too much time and, and, uh, and, and all those things. And I got the exact opposite experience. I mean, if you think about it, these kids at the time were 13 and 14, and they are not only able to um, sort of hold ideas in their head, like deep loss and shame and the guilt of a parent blaming them for the loss of a sibling and stuff in the first movie. They weren't only able to hold it in their heads, they were able to articulate it through a performance. And so when you unleash that in the second movie and you have this girl realize that not only did her father not not, not love her, he loved her more than anything and, and wished for her to be better than him. And that's exactly what she does in the second movie. She takes everything that he taught her and does so much more with it than he, uh, he even thought he could. Oh my, you're going to make me cry properly like every year. <laughs> so, oh, but that's the thing is there's, you really care about this family. You really, you know, that's, you've done this brilliant thing where you've made us all just love this family and want the best for them. And we want to know that they're okay. And we want to know that they're looking out for each other. And there's so much soul and so much truth, I think, in that Thank family so dynamic that you wrote in the first that continues in this one as well. Thank you for saying that. That was absolutely what we were going for. And I think that that's certainly what I've learned especially in this latest wave of genre, everybody always says that there's this new category of genre, but I think that in genre, I remember a, a good friend of mine, Drew Goddard, who's a genius and he wrote The Martian and then directed and wrote um, uh, Bad Times at the El Royale, things like that. I remember he was the one who said, the beauty of genre is it keeps the audience at an arm's length, but in a good way. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, if you're a child of divorce, Kramer versus Kramer might be really intense for you. It might feel too real. Whereas a movie like E.T. allows this mysticism that allows you to deal with divorce, but in a, a way that you're more open and more vulnerable. And I thought that was genius, clearly genius yeah. enough to, to steal his, <laughs> to steal his, uh, his genius in, in, in other interviews. But it's really what I found. I think that you watch a movie like Get Out and what that is able to deal with in such a palpable, eviscerating way because of genre or yeah. a love story like Let the Right One In. I don't know if I've seen a love story as good as that in recent you know, time because yes, because you're sort of triggered by these 
two children who fall in love and one of them is a vampire, it, it, you're, you're allowed to go with it. You, you allow your soul and your brain to kind of go with this mysticism. And that's what I love most about genre. That's a good film night right there. All those films that you just... I know, I agree, so. right? There we go. Yeah, I'm there, totally. Um, <laughs> listen, I, I had the absolute pleasure of, of chatting to your composer a couple of days ago, Marco, and um, and it was really fascinating talking to him about the um, the journey between these two films with with the score and the music. And also, I think another thing is, is that... And what was interesting as well that he talked about is something that he's learned over the years is to to build that relationship between the composer and the sound team and how important that can be. And this film is a great example of that because you give us a very short moment within the first film where we get the perspective from Regan's character, from Millie's um, character there. But with this, it's kind of, it's it's heightened and you really are there and it physically kind of jolts you. It's so powerful. That was one of my favorite experiences of, of this whole process that actually came from a moment on set that I was talking to Millie's mother. And I oh, said wow. to Millie's mom, I said, um, is Millie completely deaf or can she hear at all? And she said, she actually can. I remember she called it an envelope. She said, it's almost like she's in an envelope. There's a soft rumbling sound to her and she might not be able to hear you speak, but she can hear a loud car door and a, you know, a big bang behind her. And so I brought that to the sound team and I said, we have to do that. We have to bring the audience into this envelope that, that Millie's mom was talking about. And we worked really hard on it. It was one of the things I'm most proud of. And then at the premiere of the movie, which was an emotional night for everybody, I remember um, Millie's mom came up to me and she was weeping. And I remember thinking, um, wow, I, I'm so glad she liked the movie. And she said, no, the movie was great. But I have to tell you that all my life, the only thing I've been praying for every day is to understand my daughter's experience that she goes through every single day. And for the first time in my life, um, I got to experience that thanks to you. And so she said, I'll never be able to thank you for that. And I burst into tears. And I said, well, I think you are the one who inspired. But that kind of organic connectivity between real life and this cast and this movie is what made this whole thing so magical. And it, make, it makes me tear up every time I talk about it. I know you're about it's the second time in the eight minutes, John. This is ridiculous. Stop now. Um, with, the, with the score, before we talk about the score, that you have this brilliant thing where within each film we have one needle drop. So you yes. have a Neil Young track in the first film and then we have Beyond the Sea in, in this one. How did you come to the decisions of those songs? And in particular, Beyond the Sea, the, the particular version that you were going to use, you know, there's so many versions of that song. Yes. But, but yeah, what was the kind of the decision-making process in those songs? Well, Beyond the Sea, um, I'm a nerd for, uh, <laughs> I'm a nerd for um, tracking logic. And, and <laughs> what I loved about that was, it was one of the first ideas I had it, once I realized that the, 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 the odyssey for Millie's character would be to take this weapon that she realized she had and bring it to the rest of the world, that she was selfless and that she was going to try to help the rest of the world where would the rest of the world be safe? And I remember thinking, well, if they're on an island, then they'd be safe. And how would you get to communicate that to people? Well, you wouldn't have someone sitting in a room all day, every day, talking out to the rest of the world. You'd try to find some clue to give the rest of the world that you could leave on repeat. And that's where I came up with the idea of Beyond the Sea. And I'm a huge Bobby Darren fan. He's probably one of, if not my favorite artists to listen to that, that sort of takes me away and calms me down. Beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me. 
My lover stands on golden sands And watches the ships that go sailing And then in the first movie, the Neil Young song, I remember that song's been a favorite of mine forever, but it was the... Um, first dance wedding song to uh, our dear friends. And I remember when they shared that with me, it was just uh, a, a foregone conclusion that I had to use it in the movie. And then I think that what happened, one of my favorite stories of the first movie was when Emily and I started to do that, I remember Cameron Crowe on his set used to play music out loud. And I, I never thought I'd be bold enough and or uh, uh, good enough to play a song live through, through um, speakers on set. And when we did... It was sort of halfway through the shoot and we we played that in the basement. And I think that really was the moment I realized how lucky I was to do this movie with my wife, not only because she's a tremendous actress and the best in the business, in my opinion, but because that's where we really got to play with that secret language that I wasn't even sure we had. And that that scene to me is the articulation of the secret language between two people who very luckily are in love and going through a difficult time. And so that that scene became much more magical than just two people dancing. And I remember looking around and I could tell which members of the crew were in a relationship because they, they were tearing up. And it was really a, a beautiful moment. Come a little bit closer, hear what I have to say. Just like children sleeping, we could dream this night away. Isn't it amazing how powerful music can be to do that? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I think that it can change the inner workings of your body in a split second. I mean, I, I think right now, if either you or I played a song that meant so much to us right now, we would feel it. You would almost feel that story behind the, behind the song. It's almost like a, it can be a almost a time machine as well, can't it? So there'll be a particular song that you can hear that you might not have heard for 10 years, but as soon as you hear the first two notes of that song, you are immediately taken back to that moment that it meant the most. Exactly right. Amazing. Uh, Let's talk about Marco before we run out of time because I loved chatting to him and the score is extraordinary and it does, it does so many things because it, it heightens that kind of, you know, the terrifying nature of the, the creatures and, and, when they're arriving and, and all that kind of thing yeah. as well. But, but also the emotional side of it. And there was one cue in particular where Killian's characters, um, when, he, when he's on the beach and he's looking at the picture of his son. Yes. And it's actually a really uplifting and beautiful piece. Yes. But it could have been almost, you know, cry, cry. Right, right, right. And it does, but in a very different way. And yeah. so I was just interested to, to learn about the conversations that you had with Marco, particularly because you know, these two films and how the score moved and I guess kind of progressed from the first film to the second as well. Well, I think that what we talked about in the first movie for sure was tonally, we understood that it needed to be able to deliver tension, right? It was going to be another character in the movie that music, I said, I wanted the music to almost be a shepherd for the family that they, it would, it would not uh, uh, be ahead of the family, but it would be behind them. It would always be behind them, guiding you through uh, what their experience was rather than tipping your hat. Because I think that's the worst thing that can happen in genres that you give it away with sound or music. And he really understood that. And then we started talking more esoterically about things like, I just said, what I want is to get that sense that this family is actually losing the memory of music, that, that it's been so long. Think about 
if you can't hear any music whatsoever, would you start to forget it? And I remember he loved that idea of uh, the elements of music breaking down and you not even remembering if that's how the song really went. And so all this stuff became more discordant and more um, uh, broken down into pieces, which was really thrilling. think nobody can score an anxiety attack quite like Marco. I think that that's, <laughs> that was, I mean, what, what he's able to do, I don't know if you've seen the movie score, if you haven't, it's beautiful, but when you see his laboratory up there uh, in the hills, uh, he's able to create all this stuff because he feels the world in that, in that very specific way, which we are lucky to tap into. It's really interesting knowing when to score like the tension parts, like knowing when to score a jump scare and knowing yes when not to as well and also yeah. how, how do you write a jump scare you don't I mean the truth <laughs> is, is I mean you really don't I, I I remember sitting down to write the first movie and I thought uh how am I ever gonna to write a scary movie I I didn't even watch scary movies as a kid I, I certainly did a lot of research before I did this one but and I realized actually the biggest lesson I learned was on the office which was the head of the show Greg Daniels he came up to me one day because I was basically quaking at my desk and he said is everything all right and I said yeah I said this is my favorite I think it was like three weeks into shooting we it was probably our second episode and I said this is my favorite joke in the script I want to make sure I deliver it funny for you and he said whoa, whoa, whoa you don't deliver anything funny you just deliver it honestly and if people think it's funny that's up to them and if people think your line is sad that's up to them you just deliver it honestly and I thought Wow, I've taken that with me through my whole career. And when I sat down to write the first movie, that's exactly what I did. I wrote a, a movie about a family. And so the jump scares really came because I wrote about a family living believably under this set of circumstances. And the scares all of a sudden started writing themselves because you didn't want to see this family in peril. And so anytime this family got separated, the tension went up and all of a sudden you found a jump scare presenting itself perfectly because you didn't want anything to, uh, to happen to this family that you fell in love with. That's so interesting because it's so effective. Thank you very I mean, much. I've actually levitated um, a couple <laughs> of times watching, watching this one. It's, it's, yeah, it's so good. Who decided that strings would be terrifying in the world of scoring as well? Strings are just most terrifying, that kind of quivering strings. It's like they just oh, almost yeah. are kind of. They're making your fists clench as they're kind of playing. It's like. No, absolutely. And I, and I thought that, you know, I, I remember talking to Marco too about the emotionality of each character. And so, you know, you yeah. mentioned that, that moment of Killian on the beach. And if you go back and watch the movie again, that, that piece of music is actually introduced the first time that you meet Killian, but it's only introduced with one part. There's only um, the high strings are with Killian, but the cello doesn't come in till much later because the cello all of a sudden is his transformation and his redemption instrument. And so by the end of the movie, these tiny little pieces that we had introduced in the beginning come back in the end with him. And it's sort of when he's getting his whole, you know, perspective on the world back. When you were, can you remember going into the first film and, and if there were any specific scores that were inspiring to you in terms of how in your head you, you heard a quiet place sound in were there any inspirations for you oh yeah absolutely i remember um <clears throat> first and foremost which I'm, I'm sure almost everybody's heard but 
Arvo part, you know, that, that whole um, Spiegel I'm Spiegel thing. breaking down of one instrument, two instruments, three instruments, and having each instrument take the lead. I remember that was really influential to me. Um, if for no other reason, the handoff idea, that idea that an instrument would hand off and become dominant and the other instrument that you loved in the piece previous becomes, you know, in the background and, and more decrescendoed. And I, I love that whole, that whole idea. And then as far as scores go, there's so many scores that I, have loved from, you know, the mission that that score is pretty flawless to um, even like let the right one in recently. It, it, yeah. It's, it's uh, I love when uh, scores are scary, but still delicate, that there's an idea yeah. of fragility to the whole thing. That's what moves me. And that idea that you were talking about with with your films of them not, you know, being like most traveling as you get at airports of kind of taking you into the emotion of it, of it kind of just being over your shoulder to That's wait. Exactly you right. Experienced it. Yes, absolutely. Are we getting a third? We are getting a third. Um, sure. <laughs> only because you asked. Only because you asked. Um, no, we uh, we have a tremendous. I'm so lucky to have a filmmaker that I think is one of the best out there right now jeff nichols um has oh, agreed to yes. do the third installment and so jeff nichols is one of my favorite directors and writers he's done so many good movies but the movie most recently that i was sort of thinking of when i asked him to do it was mud i think that he has that ability to write unbelievably specific and heartbreaking characters that you fall in love with and um and so i i am excited to see the magic he cooks up in this one i'm kind of it's a double-edged sword because i'm excited but i'm also you're stepping back from that kind of that that role in it, so yeah, it must. I'll be, be a part of it as much as he wants yeah, me to be. I mean, it's a it's a team <laughs> sport for sure. I mean, the Quiet Place world is. We're lucky to have everyone that's involved be so in love with it. So it's kind of like summer camp. So as much as he wants <laughs> wants me around, I'll be there. Could someone get John off set, please? Yeah, please exactly. <laughs> this is embarrassing for you, John. Get out of here. 
listen, it's so great to chat to you. Thank you so much for your patience as well with this whole setup and stuff. And, Are um, you kidding? This is great. I, I love the car pat, the, the car <laughs> podcast, the car cast. <laughs> um, and yeah, congratulations again, John. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank stuff. you so Thank much. You. It was so nice Take to care. talk to you. See ya. Stay safe. Bye bye. From the score to A Quiet Place 2, that's Mother and Child by Marco Beltrami, rounding off this first part of soundtracking with John Krasinski. And I have to uh, thank John for being so generous and accommodating, considering I did the interview in my car. And so to the man who composed that cue himself, Marco. Now we'll begin this next section of the podcast with another of his compositions, A Grateful Family. Listen, I had the the fabulous experience of having my first trip back into the cinemas and watching A Quiet Place 2 last week. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. And that's exactly where you need to see it, is in cinemas with those sound systems and having the whole experience. So great. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that myself because I never got a chance to see the final thing all put together because... Um, you know, they were mixing in New York and I was in L.A. and they had like a final playback. And it was just the beginning. It was like February of 2020, something like that. And mm-hmm. I I was just hearing stories about the virus. I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want to go, you know, yeah. so I stayed home. So I'm going to go see it myself. I'm going to take the family and see it this weekend. I love that. <laughs> that must be yeah. quite a rare thing, though, for you to to have that where you're not obviously coming in cold to it, but you, you know, you're kind of. You get to have to be the fan watching the whole experience. 
yeah, I mean, we'll see if all the music's in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is. It's, yeah, okay. it, it really, really is. I wanted to, I, I guess this is, um, I don't know, well, tell me if it's, a, if it's a unique opportunity where you work across a sequel of a film and whether there is how much connection there is between the two films how much is there any repetition is there any you know kind of uh progression and journey for for cues from one to the next there's a lot of connection i mean it's the, uh, i don't know if you saw the first but it's the same it's the same world it's the same cinematic world I, you know yeah. the difference in this movie without giving anything away is that they they venture out they leave the home they leave the farm so it has a little bit more of an adventure film to it but it really is the same world and so it's the same thematic material that i developed in first and i got to expand here it's the same palette you know i did a few things a little bit differently in the first movie i had a a piano that had um the all the just the black notes detuned uh, a quarter step. On this, I actually took a whole piano and detuned it uh, a quarter step. So, you know, just expanding a little bit on the things that uh, that we that we worked on in the first one. And yeah, it is nice to work on a sequel. Is it? It is nice to. Yeah, it is because uh, it's a chance to, to you know, the materials establish. It's a, it's a chance to let the the wings flap a little, you know, and let it let it uh, play out a little bit more. And uh, there's a comfort level with everybody. There's a comfort level on the part of the filmmakers and everything um, when they are actually using the first movie to temp for the second one, there's a little bit of that uncertainty that they always have uh, on, in movies uh, with the music as a familiarity with it. So it makes it, makes it uh, the dialogue a lot less abstract and more tangible. Well, there's kind of almost sort of, there's, there's, there's just two extremes that I love about your score for these films is the is the kind of really experimental side of it that that kind of represents the kind of you know the fear and the and the kind of running and the and the kind of tension of it and then this beautiful kind of palette of strings and 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 love and you know, kind of going to the ends of the earth for the, your family kind of vibe that you get from all these beautiful cues that you you write for that side of it. It's these kind of two extremes and they work so well. And they, it, it's so powerful as well, because it, particularly in the opening sort of moments of the, the new film, because it opens with sound before we see anything. So it puts you in a state 
you know, music has that ability to transport you immediately, just just with one note, even or a vibration, and and that's what this does so cleverly is that you hear this kind of. I mean, I don't, I, I'm not sure what how you created it, but it's it's kind of got a sort of drone element to it. you hear that before you see anything so it puts you in a kind of an emotional state before you've even seen anything it's so clever you're getting me excited to go see it here <laughs> no, but, uh, well thank you I thought, first of all thank you that's very kind of you to say such nice things um uh yeah i mean there is a a big ideological um balance between this uh, more acoustical orchestral palette for the human parts, the family, the thematic uh, elements of the father-daughter theme and the family theme, and uh, and contrasting that with the more manipulated electronic parts of the monster stuff mm. uh, and and the alien part, and I think what and the suspense and also basically the narrative, uh, which you know keeps it in the realm of uh, suspense um, and the overall idea for this was that at the heart this is a family movie it's it, it, it's a and and it's so well acted and it's so well put together that the way it is scary is because you really feel for the characters and you're invested in their safety and their well-being and so and that way you can actually play with really minimal ideas especially when it's a a, a very neutral canvas uh, sonically and anything you do becomes highlighted in a way so it's it's a unique opportunity in that and it's really interesting as well within that kind of sonic canvas that you have this really this necessary perspective from Regan you know this hard, hard sonic perspective of silence you know mm-hmm. in, in terms of what that's like for for heart you know and and we see that within the first within the sort of first act of, of this this new film. And it's um and that in itself of the kind of the side, you know, the 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 immediate kind of you're transported to her perspective and to, you know, she can see what's going on, but in terms of sonically, she and that's such a, a kind of essential thing to do because it makes you kind of sort of check in with yourself. Well it makes you identify with her, her plight, you know, it's not it's not just watching her distractedly or you know from a third person but it almost puts you in her in her in a sympathetic place where you Mm. can uh, you know identify a little bit with her which I think you know John does an amazing job at in the movie he's very good isn't he he's very good yeah (laughs) he's very good he's done a great job again you know these two films I love they're so I think someone said about them being genre defined sort of defined and they really are because they you know, they're love stories, they're, they're horrors, they're, they're kind of action films. There's so many things they really are. It's very clever. Which is great. I mean, I, the whole notion of genre, I don't really 
careful. I mean, stories yeah. are stories. They, they should be able to, they shouldn't just fit in one world. I, uh, and so the fact that this brings attention to the, the fact that, they can, you know, a movie can work in many levels and be entertaining, but also make you feel something deeper. I, 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 uh, I think is, is really great. And, and what a great way to sort of open theaters up too. <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. I'm, I, I'm, I'm hoping, I think I'm going to get to speak to John next week. Cause I'm so intrigued into of how you write, a, how you write a jump scare or how you direct a jump scare, because I, I came, my, my heart was racing so many times during this film. It's so, and I, and I really craved it. You know, that kind of thing of, of you, I remember, you know, remember being a kid with the kind of, cushion ready when you were watching a film at home sort of thing and you knew there was going to be scary moments and you almost kind of crave that and I think I wanted this first cinema experience back to be everything I love about cinema and this film was so much of what I love about cinema it really was yeah I know it's definitely true I've got a couple of specific cues from the new film that I apologize now for how I describe them because I'm, I'm not familiar enough with the score titles and stuff yet and and I'm hoping that you recognize them from my description, even though you've not seen the film in its final form. But um, okay. there's, there's only a, there's a couple. But when she uh, kind of near the um, near the beginning of the film, after we've sort of had um, Regan's perspective and she has the watch and there's a really gorgeous cue there. And that's the really interesting thing that your music does so much for the narrative because of the lack of words and conversation at certain parts of the film. Well, I'm pretty sure that if, if it's the cue that it's supposed to be there, that, you know, it's, so that's the thematic representation of the father daughter theme, which mm. is very uh, spare. Right. And I remember when I started working on the film uh, back on the first movie, there was, just a couple pieces that John mentioned to me that were inspirational to him, piece of music. And one was a specific piece. The other was this composer, Avopart. And when he mentioned that, I, I wasn't sure at the time how, how it fit in. But as I got to watching the film, and this is, by the way, one of the reasons I don't like to read scripts, because I would never pick this up from reading the script. But it's in the intimate details of the performance of her performance and and the emotion of it that you don't want to overplay but you want to be poignant and uh and so having this um sparse piano i think we used harp i'm not sure what's used in this case but uh it could be the piano harmonics that started uh and i you know i i I thought that it would somehow capture the this very tenuous delicate relationship that she has with her with her father
yeah and it's and it's lovely because that kind of goes right through to to the end where i think uh emmett kind of says you know something along the lines of there's so much of him you, you know you're him basically you know and it's, yeah. it's it's almost kind of that that kind of journey and that cue kind of feels like it has a kind of beautiful journey throughout the whole film in a weird way okay there's a cue called show me your face that i loved as well when you're when you're starting with a a piece like that are you starting from like you say like from uh the emotional necessity of the characters and the story and the narrative yes now the interesting thing about that spot is that i tried a couple things because i had a, a theme for emmett as well and this is sort of a a uh, an emotional scene for him too he's made a, a journey uh, on this as well and i originally thought well i'll play it with his theme but after watching it it's like the thing is really about it's really about her mm-hmm. fundamentally so that seemed to be a bigger picture and and he was fitting into her world there as well so yeah i mean sometimes you toy around with these things uh, yeah. and musically both ways would have worked in terms of the bigger picture. I think the, um, and this is a discussion also that I have with John about what, you know, what, what we play here. So that that's, you know, these are the things that you figure out along the way, discussing with the, with the director and, and, you know, keeping it a collaborative affair. And then there's Emmett's realizations, and it feels like there's almost a kind of certain palette of sounds for his character in particular. You know, in terms of where there's where there's cues that are coming in to reflect his story, his emotions, his narrative, his journey. That there are certain instrumentation, I guess, is is my kind of non-musical way of trying to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, so again, it's all part of the same acoustical world of the other characters, but yeah. Uh, and this is where I'll have to actually watch and see mm. for myself, because I know there was, uh, for the Emmett scenes, we had a couple different ideas. That, and yeah. so what uh, is finally in the picture, I'll be really curious to see. I love it.
I love yeah. that you don't know. It's like, it's, I know. It's, I know. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And there's a couple of ones that you will know from the first film that I, I, I allowed myself the luxury of, of just listening to the, to the soundtrack from the first film. And it's, it's so great. It was really lovely to go back and, you know, I hadn't watched the film in a while. I watched the film again and then I just sat with the soundtrack and it was so great to have on and listen to. Um, and I love um, A Quiet Life. It goes on a, an amazing journey just as a piece of music. Yeah, I mean, that that was the, um, I think that was the first thing I wrote for the, the whole wow. series, you know, and that was inspired by John telling me that one of the things that he was listening to when he was working on movie right from the very beginning was um this cover of uh david bowie's heroes song and uh so i listened you know i listened to the to, to the song and um thought about how it related and what there what it was that made this applicable piece for for the movie and mm-hmm. um so that that was yeah that was uh, the the original thematic idea for the whole series wow the whole, yeah And the kids' bonfire cue as well is just another favorite of mine. Right, yeah, that was that was a that was a fun scene to do. Um, you're bringing back memories now. Am I the, uh, happy ones yeah. and good ones? I hope, Mark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. kind of the choice of there's a one one more cue in this in the first film it was a quiet moment you know you talked about the kind of I don't know what the correct term is but you had the you know the black notes you tuned down or or whatever yeah I mean the idea was the idea is that these people have been without music they've been without things for a long time it's almost like the uh without uh sound uh and it's almost like they're impression of what music was their their memory of maybe beginning to fade a little bit you know on a very abstract level and that was something i was like oh how could we how could we do that i can't can't detune the whole orchestra because that'll 
it's, it'll sound like, a, you know, just added an attitude. But if you can actually just take a few notes and give the hint of that, that might mm-hmm. be enough. I know we kind of got um, a little bit of time left, so I, do, I hope you don't mind if I talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done with James Mangold as well, who I was lucky enough to have, lucky enough to have on the. Oh wow! On the yeah, show. He's, yeah, he's amazing, amazing director. He's... Yeah. Oh, I just I love being in his company. I was lucky enough to yeah. host a couple of Me too. days. <laughs> just yeah, he's he's got this infectious energy that's just yeah. And he's so musically like savvy. Like, I mean, I, I have to say, I, you know, working with, with Jim, I, I sort of listen to music in a different way, you know, the whole way that he wants uh, the scoring sessions to be less precise, less polished, like mm-hmm. sort of rough around the edges approach. You know, there's something to that. You, know, you hear mm-hmm. that you get the actual performance of, humans as opposed to you know being a slick polished thing it, it, he's yeah i i um he's it's been tremendous having him to, to work for he made me cry in an interview, when i interviewed him because he told me this incredible story about when he was before and then after filming walk the line and this relationship that he'd built up with johnny cash and that he would have these phone calls with him every saturday morning and that that johnny cash's daughter kind of told James that he would just wait for the phone to ring on a Saturday morning he'd kind of wait for James's call sort of thing and I was like God's bawling my eyes out when he told me that story it was so beautiful so lovely Logan is one of my favorite favorite films of of James he's just in terms of you know I think that that idea of these characters in their world and how he flipped it on its head and made this just sort of beautiful film I thought it was stunning what do you remember about working on logan with him yeah i mean i agree completely i i i I love that movie and uh again the fact that you know this was a uh you know a a superhero movie but we could totally take it in a new direction and that he really captained the ship to go in this sort of alternate direction with the music and championed this approach was so refreshing and the fact that we were able to experiment and try things that may not have been ordinary, you know, it made it into such a great experience. And I think the end result is you have a very special, unique film. That main theme gets me every time.
There's two of my favourites, the main theme and L, is it Eliminator it's called? Which is yeah, yeah we, we play oh. on we a lot of a lot of puns on words. We, you know, you spend too much time in the studio by yourself. You yeah. start making your own puns. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. that's yeah. a hell of it's, a piece of music. That it's just the yeah the string, the piano, and the trumpet, and oh, it's great. Possible to think that we could even really skim the surface of the work that you've done as a composer. You know, when you look down the list of of projects that you've worked on, and and a number of documentaries as well, which is is something that I wanted just to touch on in terms of if it's a different approach to working on a, a documentary as opposed to a feature. Well, it is. And it isn't. Uh, I mean, the, uh, my process of, of writing to is, is, you know, again, similar. I get the inspiration from what I am seeing on, on the screen and, and uh, finding a through line that it connects the picture throughout. And uh, I, I think one of the differences that in a documentary, you tend to have a lot of uh, voiceover stuff that goes throughout. And it, it, and it's integral to the telling of the, the doc. And and so in those cases, you have to be supportive. And the function of the music might be a little bit different in that, mm-hmm. in, in those spaces. But in the end, you know, like when you have the the bigger moments, the thematic moments, I think it's very similar to scoring a, you know, a dramatic picture. I guess with some projects and directors, you can you have the ability to experiment more with some than you do with others. And I know, and I've, I have I was privy to a, a wonderful story about the recording of, of some of the work for, for Holmes Way and, you know, or recording your orchestra outside and, and just experimenting with how you create sound and, you know, bringing in other elements to, you know, to manipulate it and, and things like that. Is that part of the fun for you in terms of? Oh, steps? yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, that, uh, every project is unique. Finding out the needs of it, finding out what the crux of the picture is, is, is to me that's the the puzzle. That's solving cracking the puzzle is really what I, I love about it. And 
you know, on that, in that movie, the homesman, um, Buck, my uh, partner in the studio and I, we, we, um, we really wanted to experiment with the wind. The wind was the, was almost like a character in the movie. And, uh, it's, uh, it's what's causing these, these people to go crazy out, you know, the homes, homesteaders in the, in the turn of the century. And so being able to tune the wind and make it actually a character in the movie was, and turning this non-musical thing into a musical element was part of the part of the fun of that. explorations of doing that and and if you have a director that supports you in the on this creative journey mm. and of exploration like Tommy Lee Jones did and that it makes the process that much more fun because you're in, involving everybody in, in it yeah I wish Catherine Bigelow would make more films more regularly um because you know the heart locker I, I know she's she's she you know she's she's always trying to make films and I know that this industry is such a you know it's a hard one to kind of get things kind of through I guess but the Heart Locker which is god it's like 2008 now I think as well was was a, a phenomenal film well that movie that that was an interesting movie too because that that uh, totally revolutionized my idea of how music and sound work together in a movie up until that point I think probably I always viewed the sound department as my ad- adversary a little bit and yeah. you're competing for the same space uh in the final mix but that's the the picture where i you know really saw that music and sound work together to create this the emotional uh mm. underpinning of the film they're not uh, uh combatants but they they should work hand in hand and that's when i started to really work closely with the sound department Is that because you learned whilst you were making that film? Was that something she kind of encouraged in terms of the collaboration element or? That was something that, uh, yeah, I, you know, when we started out on that film, uh, she only wanted two cues of music. There's only two spots. But little by little, as we uh, experimented, because one of the things that we tried to do was make the sonic textures to manipulate the audience to heighten the awareness the the reality there without really the audience being able to know what it was and and it began to work more and more and so it turned into a a full-fledged score we started you know asking the sound guys what they were 
doing and, and taking some of their elements and giving them what we were doing. And there was a, there became a, a dialogue between us. And that was really the first time that happened. And, and you and then you come to sort of to to now with something like a quiet place and that relationship is so important yeah it, it absolutely is and yeah if I hadn't had the, the hurt locker experience <laughs> you know the uh, quiet place may have turned out differently <laughs> so you know it's funny how your life's a progression and things feed other things and it's all Everything isn't doesn't exist in a vacuum at all. Sort of yeah. lends itself to uh, a bigger process. And being open to learning, you know, and and developing as well, and and having an open mind to to your role being something different to what you expect it to be or or understand it to be as well. Exactly. Last one, I promise, before I leave you, um, and I know that there's about another 500 that we could talk about, but um, back <laughs> to Mr. Mangold because 310 to Yuma is a film that. I was about three weeks ago. It was on film four here in the UK. And I was just like, like I fist pumped the air. I was like, yes. Um, <laughs> I I love that film. And I guess that that's, the, you know, there's the, there's the, the expectation for, you know, we go back to when we were talking earlier about, about genre defying and about how it is a genre film, but it's not as well. And I think that, yeah. I just think that there were ways that, that James and his creative team, are you included in that kind of not fought against that, but encouraged that in a way, would you agree? Oh, totally. Uh, yeah, that was, yeah, that was such a great, I, I loved that movie. Um, what was so much fun for me, besides from, you know, just the movie as a whole is yeah. that everything was sort of anachronistic. Like it all took place, you know, in the late, you know, 1800s, uh, but the movie was very modern in a way. And so musically, I thought, wow, well, what if we used only instruments that could have been around in that time period, but we treated them in a very modern way. So, you know, we had like a tack piano that we actually outfitted with tacks at like a saloon piano. And uh, we had, you know, we only used acoustic guitars and um, percussion instruments. We had, we used um, like, I think the chimes from grand, uh, grandfather clock and uh, wow. uh and and all, all kinds of things like that but then we we manipulated you know buck and i treated everything so the guitars sound they can sound electric uh by the way we process them or the piano we could filter it out so it became you know very percussive and became the sounds of it could could be very modern but yet it was rooted in this tradition uh, this even if it was a fake tradition and uh and i think that really was a fun process you know to embark on 
people are listening and they haven't seen it or they haven't seen it in a while, go and treat yourself to a, to a screening of 310 to Yuma. It's a great experience. Um, listen, we've run out of time, but I, I, I'm excited because um, you're working with Andy Serkis or you may have finished working on on Venom with with Andy Serkis. I, I, I love Andy. I think he's he's a wonderful human being. Yeah, I met him. It was hard. We were working through uh, COVID oh, times. Wow. Um, but um, I did finally meet him face to face when yeah. he came out for a screening of playback at Sony. And uh, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to spend more time with the guy. I, I could tell he's, you know, I, I love to hang out with him and and he was great to, to work with. And I, I love his ideas and he, he made a great movie. So it's, yeah. um, I think that's coming out sometime in the fall. Great. Well, hopefully maybe we can have some more time to, to talk about your, your brilliant work, Marco. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Edith. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been great. Enjoy the rest of your day and I wish you well. Thank you. You too. From the score to A Quiet Place Part 2, that's Regan on her own. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Marco Beltrami and John Krasinski. My huge thanks to Marco and John for taking the time to talk to us. A Quiet Place 2 is on general release now and, as I said earlier, fully deserves to be seen and heard in a cinematic setting. Head to edithbowman.com to find a link to a Spotify playlist for the show featuring the music that we play in the order it appears. My website is also the place to catch up with every single episode of the podcast and please subscribe if you haven't already. Now we're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And do check out our little YouTube channel too where I put together sort of sporadic shows of the great and good from the world of film, music and television. Next up then, we continue in the vein of having lovely chats with directors and their composers. A film that's due to hit cinemas over the next couple of weeks, Supernova, starring Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth. It is written and directed by Harry McQueen and composed by the fabulous Keaton Henson. Harry and Keaton join me next week on Soundtracking. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>